0: For the next half hour, you'll hear expert insight, commentary, and potential financial opportunity. We want you to know up front, eyes wide open, companies featured on this program have given us cash money to be portrayed here. Some of the analyst segments are sponsored as well. Ellis Martin may have a financial position and issues mentioned on this program. Whatever. I'm telling you now, so you don't wonder later. Have I ever lied to you? No. And I'm not going to start now. So why bring it up? You know how it makes me feel. I'm a sensitive guy. (laughs) I'm the announcer for the Ellis Martin Report, and I'm okay with my feelings. Okay. On the web, find us at ellismartinreport.com. Here's the host of the Ellis Martin Report ellis martin
1: ian chalmers is the managing director of a company with significant assets of zirconium rare earths and rare metals as well as gold and copper in new south wales australia the company is called alkane resources it trades in the u.s on the otcqx under the symbol a n l k y ian welcome back to the program
2: Pilus, nice to be talking to you again.
1: I was just reading an article the other day, and it seems that the Australian economy is one of the few, if not the only, major economies outside of China that is showing a surplus. And that is based on the mining industry, from what I understand, with sales to China and Japan, etc.
2: Absolutely. Really, Australia came through the whole GFC and the the latest of downturns and ructions very, very well. And certainly, we're charging along. And as you you rightly said, really, we're now very linked to China. And to another degree, maybe India. India is a country that often gets overlooked elsewhere in the world. But the Indian economy is following a path of the Chinese. Probably several years behind, probably take longer because there's a different sort of philosophical attitude within India those economies are really moving forward and that fortunately for australia rubs off now You know, that particularly in the mining industry, our mining industry is enormously strong. I mean, if you saw some of the investment numbers that are going into the industry, you know, we're talking hundreds of billions of dollars investment going into the mining industry over the next few years. So it's charging along. The slight negative is that it's sort of impacting a little bit on the rest of the economy and a a very strong Australian dollar is making it very difficult to, for Australian exports to compete, so yes, the country is in very, very good shape, driven by the mining industry. But there is a few little concerns that sort are of underlying it as well.
1: Is the mining industry employing many people in Australia?
2: Not really. Like all things, I mean, the mining industry has got very, very good in the last 10 years of, of sort of automation and minimising. I, I think the employment's probably something less than 100,000, so it's not a huge employment. But again, in Australian context, that's quite a lot. But nothing like, say, the the manufacturing industries or the tourism industries or those sort of things. But it's a very high value, and and that's part of the issue here currently: is how does that high value going to a relatively few people get distributed to the rest of the country? And sitting where we do. Here in Western Australia, which is the dominant mining state, we're always hearing and feeling that uh, that us Westerners are keeping uh, the Easterners surviving, uh, economically going, and so there's always a little bit of friction between the East and the West about who's doing what to keep the country afloat. But again, overall, it's still pretty positive.
1: They're freeloaders in the East, then, aren't they?
2: <laughs> 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 I, I do notice that uh, that same uh, sentiment coming from the US and Canada too. You quite often, I'm quite often in, in places, and you hear that you hear the same sort of. Sarcastic. It is amazing, isn't it, that you can have continents on the other side of the world and it's surprisingly the same sort of philosophy. So, yeah, it's uh, it's quite fascinating.
1: What's interesting about Australia and Canada, aside from them being Commonwealth countries, is that the Canadian-Australian dollar have been strong against the U.S. and other currencies around the world.
2: Absolutely, yeah, absolutely. And, and again, it, it's sort of almost counterproductive in some ways because obviously if you're a major exporting country like Australia, like Canada, you don't want a strong dollar because it makes the material so expensive. That's the only negative that we see, and we also see the Australian dollar seems to be one of those ones that's favoured by speculators, so market sentiment drives the Australian dollar up and down rather than sort of economic fundamentals. You know, for example, in the last three or four days, we've probably seen the Australian dollar depreciate maybe three or four percent, again, just because of economic uncertainties. And uh, it is, is—it's it's from, a, from a producer's point of view or anybody that's exporting, is—it is, it is makes life very, very difficult trying to predict where it's going to go how it affects your income.
1: Does Australia have an abundance of natural resources compared to other parts of the world, like the US? Or is it your proximity to China, Japan, and India that accounts for this boom? Or is it a combination of everything?
2: Yeah, it is. I mean, Australia geologically is a very diverse continent. I mean, it's probably not unlike Canada and the US to some degree, except we're probably, in terms of development, several tens of years behind both countries in our mining developments. What we've seen in the last 10 years, particularly here, is... Big growth in the iron ore industry, obviously, for the steel industry in China. Big growth in the coal industry, again, for the same reasons and also for energy. But perhaps the most startling is the gas, natural gas. Um, Australia now must be getting close to being the biggest LNG exporter in the world. Uh, it's probably not widely known you know, elsewhere, but the country does, uh, and is building some huge LNG projects and just exporting vast amounts. And again, it's getting consumed in places like China and India and Japan oh, and in Asia generally. just for the need for energy um, production. So it's a combination of geology. It's also a combination of geography. Obviously, it's pretty easy to export materials from Australia into Asia and into India because of the proximity. You know, we quite often see the comparison, say, with Brazil. Brazil's a major iron ore exporter, but the actual cost of shipping from Brazil, say to China, is significantly greater than it is from Australia. So that obviously impacts. So it is a a combination of geography and geology.
1: How do these combinations benefit your company, Alkane Resources?
2: Look I think they benefit us in that they give us great opportunities and in this industry you have to be in my view very persistent. You know we picked an area even though we're based on the west coast we picked an area over east to go and help out the poor uh, poverty stricken easterners to focus our development there to, to focus with the exploration work that we're doing and the development work there and again because it's a geologically significant area and we thought an area where there's a lot of potential. By persistence, I mean sometimes you have to try and get in early. Now, you know, with the Dubbo Zirconia project, this is a major zirconium niobium rare earth project. We've been working on that project now seriously for probably 13 years and when we started out back in the late 90s most people thought we were mad you know why are you looking at these exotic metals that nobody wants to buy and I guess it sort of influenced us to say well we believe that over the next 20 to 30 years the world will need these metals there will be growing demand the sources of supply are currently restricted or focused in particular geographical areas and therefore there was a great opportunity so two things there a having the access to the the right geology to start with and then second Secondly, being able to see somewhere in the future where things like these particular metals are going to be in short supply.
1: That's just brilliance on the part of the board of Alcan to be able to see that far into the future and to see this tremendous need even exporting to China. Did you see that as well back then?
2: No we didn't. I mean I certainly you know certainly would have underestimated enormously what happened in China. I think all of us really until probably four or five years ago regarded china as a as a communist country which it still is of course with a very insular outlook on the world and a very insular requirement what we didn't anticipate was this again you'd have to congratulate the chinese authorities for saying well this country needs to come up to be a first world country we need to put a lot of effort into the resources a lot of effort into the standard of living for the people of this country and that requires us to do this 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 and and then that's when the china really started to become aggressive in the the resources area and they've really driven the the demand for fine ore coal and every other metal really you might not like communism as a government philosophy, but you have to give them you know, recognition for what they've done and then the flow-on effects it's had to other places like Australia.
1: I just wonder how that works under communist government. How do you manage 1.3 billion people and keep them productive?
2: I think that the fundamental is you keep them happy. You get them happy, keep them happy. And, and this urbanization program that's going on in China, where they're they sort of building cities, you know, 5 million, 10 million cities on a, on a regular basis, and they're encouraging people to come in off the land, you know, the, the small villages where there's really limited work and limited ability to improve, come into the cities. And then coming into the cities is like a, a self-fulfilling vision in the sense that those people then require jobs, they require, they'll go out and buy things, and they become a consumer society as well. So it's a slow process, but you can certainly see it happening in China. I mean, you only have to look at television programs on China and the the value of living that's happening now. It's it's a big, big change, huge change, and it's interesting to watch.
1: Don't the Chinese like to own most of what they involve themselves with on all ends? Don't they like to become vertically integrated by rote? Have you had any suitors trying to obtain the company?
2: Absolutely. I'd have to say I get regular telephone calls, regular emails. And if we consider there's one shortcoming that they don't understand Western sort of corporate strategies or corporate requirements and those sort of things, when you can't just ring up and say, I'd like to buy your company. It's a slightly more complicated procedure when you've got 6,000 shareholders and you're listed on the ASX and the ATCQX, it's a bit more complicated than that. But certainly it's something that they are educating themselves in, these processes. But that's why they tend to also throw a lot of money into Africa. I mean, it's a great great opportunity, you can go into Africa with large amounts of money and you can acquire substantial resources very cheaply and you don't normally get then the government interference that you'd say you'd get in Canada or the US or Australia. I mean we have quite a restrictive foreign investment requirements here that anything that's regarded as a significant asset uh, has to go to what's called the Foreign Investment Review Board and if those guys decide that even selling 20% to a foreign company impacts on the country's strategic plans, you know, not militarily, but but economically that can be refused so we've actually seen that happen on a few occasions and it actually happened to Linus I mean you know as an Australian company with a big rare earth development Um, the one stage about four years ago they almost became a Chinese company so but the FIRB here refused that takeover.
1: Tell us about your offtake agreements for your double zirconia project with foreign companies.
2: At this stage, we've got three MOUs, memorandums of Understanding. Now, you know, these aren't solid offtake agreements. They're the framework for offtake agreements. Three for zirconium, and again, we've been unable to identify two of the parties for commercial sensitivities, but certainly those parties are mixed between Asia and Europe, if that's the best geographic location I can. But currently, those three MOUs cover 100% of our zirconium output. With niobium, again, We've got 100% of our niobium committed into a joint venture with a European company. All those MOUs are progressing at various stages of development and conversion, ultimately into genuine offtake agreements. The interesting ones, the rare earths. Now we've said publicly many times in the last year or so, we could have sold the two concentrates coming out of the Dubbo project many, many times as concentrates. What we've tried to do is be a little bit more proactive, I guess, and say, well, we'd rather joint venture those rare earth concentrates into a party that can do the separations for us, then take the separated material and sell that into the world markets and that ultimately gives us a much better return for those valuable rare earths, particularly the heavier earths. We've got a 25% heavier earth output and those are very important currently in both an economic sense and a technical sense. It's a slow process and you know people sometimes get a little bit frustrated that we don't come out and announce things regularly but really it's a slow process to get what you need ultimately to make the project very successful and that's the focus. But I'm hoping that sometime in the next few weeks, actually come out with the, you be able to announce the arrangement on the rare earths.
1: Oh, something more to look forward to as we get into June.
2: That's correct. Uh, yeah, I'd like very much to have it done by the end of June. I mean our original target was the end of March, but uh, again for technical reasons it's pushed out a little bit, but I'm hoping we'll have it done and uh, certainly by the end of June.
1: Well you're going to be generating some major revenue within just a few years. The kind of revenue that most juniors will never see.
2: Yes, I mean certainly if the project goes in its current conceptual form, our revenue will be about five hundred Australian million dollars a year, which will probably convert to cash flow at around about 250 or 300 million so certainly a very substantial project requires substantial investment to achieve that but a very substantial project and I guess the nice thing is that right now you don't see an end of life to that I mean the resource is capable of supporting a mining operation for 80 years or 100 years and we know we've got other resources in the area anyway if we need to expand it but realistically when you've got a resource that It's going to last 50 years, and when you you tend not to worry, you say, well, that's going to keep going, and these are the cash flows will keep going for a long period, as long as something doesn't happen in the markets, and that's the only concern.
1: The zirconium and rare earth dwarf, what would otherwise be a sizable gold project that you have at Tom
2: Again, it's a modest gold project, but for us, we have always described it as the bread and butter project. If we can get that going sometime, and it will start the construction sometime in the next two or three months, then in 12 months' time, we start the cash flows And it really provides the background money, if you like, means that we can stay out of the market. We can fund everything else we're going to do other than obviously the development of Dubbo from those cash flows. And again, the concept of the overall target is to be able to start paying dividends sometime in the next four or five years. And that's a pretty unusual phenomenon for a lot of mining companies, especially junior mining companies, to go out with that strategy. But that's our strategy. We believe we can pay dividends and we'd like to see us become a long-term dividends-paying company.
1: Well, Ian... Once again, we've had another informative discussion today. I thank you again for joining
2: me on the program. Uh, and you too, Ellis. Nice to talk to you. Thank you.
1: I've been speaking with Ian Chalmers, the president of Alkane Resources, trading of the OTCQX under the symbol ANLKY. That's A-N-L-K-Y. Listen to this segment again on the homepage of our website, ellismartreport.com.
0: Would you like to hear all of that again? Go to the podcast page of our website. That's ellismartreport.com, Ellismartreport.com, otherwise known as Ellis martinreport.com.
1: I'm Ellis Martin. In this segment, I'm visiting with Dr. Don Robinson, President of East Main Resources, trading on the TSX under the symbol ER. East Main is an active explorer in eastern Canada with an ongoing partnership with major gold producer Gold Corp. 50% of this year's drilling will be focused on increasing the size of high-grade measured and indicated gold resources in the 450 and 850 west zones of East Maine's Eau Claire project, which may be amenable to extraction by open pit methods. I'm a shareholder of the company, and East Maine is a paid sponsor of the Ellis Martin Report. Don, welcome back to the program.
3: Good afternoon, Alice. Happy to see you again. Happy to hear you again.
1: I'm happy to see you too, Don. I'm looking at an 8x10 glossy of you right now. I have it right here on my desk. (laughs) There's a lot of selling going on at the moment, and I'm not one of those people. Do you think we're nearing a bottom?
3: Well, some of the evidence certainly points to it. If you look at every chart of all the seniors, intermediates, juniors, etc., across the board, they've all been taken a shellacking, as we say in Canada. But for the first time this morning, we saw, even though gold was off and red, seniors started off red and then bounced green pretty heartily. So, you know, perhaps this is the sign where we'll look back in the mirror and say, well, that was it and we missed it. But I think some positive should be taken out of that.
1: Does the price of gold, whether it's bullion or share prices, have anything to do with exploration or production with regard to a company like East Main?
3: Well, Barry Cook, one of the famous analysts, used to say, you know, the, the juniors should not be influenced as much by the price of gold because we're not producing gold. However, it is a retained enterprise value in the ground. So I guess there's clearly a relationship, but there's a little bit of a indirect relationship really at the end of the day.
1: Now, if you were a junior that was not as successful, let's say, as East Main, and you had to do a financing right now, you'd be in a tough spot, right?
3: And that's exactly the point, is that juniors that have not topped up their treasuries are certainly nervous, to say the least. Those that have topped up are in a position of strength. We've been fortunate for the past half a dozen years we've been able to keep the company very strong in advance last year we doubled our treasury for less than a five percent dilution the placement price that we raise money at is more than double of what we're trading at right now that's clearly an advantage for ourselves at the current point
1: drilling is underway now at clearwater you're looking to expand your resource you have a joint venture on one of your properties with gold corp they're the largest investor in your company you're developing your assets as a possible takeover candidate down the road.
3: Well, as I think we spoke before, is that we've we've done an analysis of gold projects globally, and we are dealing with a project that is one of 13 in North America in terms of size and grade, and we're making it bigger. So Clearwater is a in a unique circumstance as far as the project is concerned, and we have a very high-grade open-pit resource and there's ample evidence that we can make it bigger and fortunately we have a treasury in which we can do it and the other thing that we have at our disposal is that we have a quebec advantage and that is even with depressed share prices we are able to get a premium on any placements that we do because we're working in quebec and that just means you can stretch the dollars a lot farther this year, we are doing 50,000 meters of drilling for a budget of $10 million. There's companies out there that are doing comparable drill programs at four times the price. And that's where we have the Quebec advantage.
1: And you're in an area of Quebec that's comparable to what the Timmins Gold Camp was years ago.
3: The reason we're there in the first place is geology. And the geology that we're dealing with is a mirror image of what we've seen time and time again in these famous camps. The only difference was when we started, you had to fly for a few hundred miles in order to get to the project area. Now you can drive to it. Infrastructure is what will make the difference on any mining project. And in our case, we have a permanent road that comes right to the doorstep of the project. And we're within several miles of the cheapest power in the world when we're ready when that project gets to the point where it's ready to develop the infrastructure's already in place
1: another astounding fact about east Maine is that some of the gold grades you've identified have been astronomical essentially with regard to grades per ton out of the ground and into a truck your cost of production per ounce of gold will be dramatically lower than many other juniors in the space
3: Well, last week, we were invited to a special conference put on by Macquarie called Making the Grade, and 17 companies have a unique circumstance in that they have high-grade projects and high-grade assets. Clearwater is an exceptional one in that the open pit grade is three to five times higher than most of these undeveloped open pit projects out there, which has the following repercussions. One is that the capex or cost to develop the project is far, far less than these low-grade earth-moving exercises. Number two is that your profits out of this is much, much better. So that for a project, in our case, if it's a mill of two or 3,000 tons per day, it's equivalent to a twenty or 30,000 ton a day mill of some of these other projects. So it's clearly an advantage to have grade.
1: There are so many companies that don't necessarily have grade, and they don't have money in the bank. Even though your share price has fallen back during this pullback, it's still performing much better than many of these other companies without that grade.
3: Well, across the board, we're not happy with the share price, but we have outperformed our peers, and we've outperformed the companies that are trying to develop projects. I think we will see that specific companies get in a position where you can take advantage of this. And we have money in the bank. We have a very healthy program going forward. We're currently drilling as we speak, and that's the fun part of our business. And that way, you can grow your project and then get into a new league, a new tier. And that's really what the catalyst is going to be in terms of the main driver of the share price success.
1: Then we've got companies in Quebec, such as Cisco, with a large amount of low-grade tonnage and a share price of around seven forty or so.
3: They are the most gold price sensitive in terms of these large open pit earth moving exercises are very attractive. We just saw IM Gold acquired Trelawney. It's a very early stage large inferred resource and their objective is to make an impact uh, in terms of total production. And that's why their senior companies are looking at these low-grade projects, is that they're big. They can make an impact on the bottom line for the big companies. But they are also very sensitive to the price of gold more so than the uh, higher-grade projects. And the other thing that they're very sensitive to is other costs. And we can see that the cost of producing an ounce of gold is creeping up. In fact, it's more than creeping up. It's really escalating significantly significantly. And I think part of the reason that the cost of mining an ounce of gold is going up is that active mines are mining lower-grade material, because they can. And that for it's essentially replacing resources with lower-grade material that formerly was waste, and now they can actually make money on it.
1: In a cooperative market, what would really drive your share price north?
3: Well, I think no matter what the end-game price point is, is that as long as you can keep ahead of the curve, keep your project advancing, and keep your treasury topped up at a premium those things are things that are in your control and the rest of it will take care of itself
1: so this is how you managed to survive all these years
3: in fact this is what macquarie brought up in terms of they introduced the different companies at this conference making the grade they made a specific point of our company in terms of longevity, sort of setting the bar very high and being able to last for quite some period of time and have stamina, given the prevailing headwinds that we've seen time and time again. The reason we've been able to do that is we've taken advantage of circumstances as they present themselves, such as being able to acquire management of your project when gold price is a tenth of what it is now. That's a little fortuitous, and it's a lot fortuitous, on our behalf, but each step of the way, we've been able to take advantage of the circumstances. We were able to buy the royalty from the flagship last year outright, and so it's sort of taking advantage of what the current market conditions are enabling you.
1: This is a time where there are acquisition opportunities in the marketplace, with other juniors faltering. Are you looking at any possible acquisitions for East Main?
3: Well, actually, turn the table. The reverse is happening. Companies are screening projects that are out there. And just like we did, a number of projects filter to the top, either in terms of grade or in terms of growth, in terms of size, in terms of location. That's where our project is looking particularly attractive relative to the pack out there. In the meantime, what we're going to do is try to make it more attractive by drilling 50,000 meters.
1: Your vision, Don, is to continuously bring value to the company. By drilling. I understand you're taking a little road trip.
3: Well, we're off to New York City. The Hard Assets Conference is Monday and Tuesday. We've been invited to a sub on top of that, so we'll be presenting Tuesday afternoon to six different portfolio managers. And then following that, on Wednesday and Thursday, we will be marketing in New York to both portfolio managers and high-net-worth individuals to continue to get the word out about the company and about our success up in Northern Quebec.
1: Well, Don, it's always a pleasure to speak with you. Thanks again for joining me today on the program.
3: Thank you very much, Ellis.
1: I've been speaking with Dr. Don Robinson, president of East Main Resources, a gold exploration company trading on the TSX under the symbol ER. Listen to this segment again on the podcast page of our website, ellismartreport.com.
0: We offer expert opinions only. Find them on our website. EllisMartinReport.com That's EllisMartinReport.com Hey, it's me, Cool Voice Guy. You should be feeling the effects of brain growth by now. Take a moment and relax. You can always catch up online at our website, EllisMartinReport.com That's EllisMartinReport.com If you listen to all the programs there, your mind will be saturated with money juice. That's what I call it. That's ellismartinreport.com. dot com.
1: Join me now for a conversation with Eric Fear, the Chief Operating Officer of Silvercrest Mines. Silvercrest Mines trades on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol SVL, now the OTCQX as STBZF. Mister Fear has over twenty five years of international experience in a senior capacity, including exploration acquisition development and production of numerous mining projects in Chile, Brazil, Honduras, Mexico, and Peru. He previously served as chief geologist with Pegasus Gold. He was a senior engineer and manager with Newmont Mining and project manager with Eldorado Gold Corp. Silvercrest Mines is a Mexican precious metals producer with headquarters based in Vancouver, B.C. Silvercrest's flagship property is the 100% owned Santa Elena Mine, which is located 150 kilometers northeast of Hermosillo in the state of Sonora, Mexico. The mine is a high-grade epithermal gold and silver producer. A three-year expansion plan is underway to double metals production at the Santa Elena Mine. And exploration programs are rapidly advancing the definition of a large polymetallic deposit at the La Jolla property in Durango State, Mexico. Eric, welcome to the program.
4: Great. Thanks for having us back on the air, Ellis. It's always an opportunity to get the story out.
1: Well, you've got quite a story, and you've had quite a story for a significant amount of time. I'm just looking over your latest news release, and for quarter one of 2012, silver production is up 108 percent and gold ounces are up 198 percent. That's outstanding.
4: Yeah, that's correct, Ellis. Part of it is that we're comparing the quarter of 2011 with the current quarter. In the quarter of 2011, we were in the ramp-up phase, so we weren't at full production. So that's part of the bump-up. The other part of the bump-up in having such a significant change in percent is that we're getting better recoveries, we're getting better throughput through our crusher at the mine site, and all of that wraps up into more ounces and more cash flow for the company.
1: So you're saying a lot of it is about the tools?
4: It's about the tools and, and the people. A lot of it rolls back to a lot of the planning, strategic planning. You know, you got to have smart people on the ground and boots on the ground to get this work done. I give a big hand to our, our production team that's in Mexico. Great people, great people to work with. The local people that we're using in Mexico are top-notch people. We've taken people that have been working out on, on the ranching side a year ago and trained them up, and they're doing an excellent job. It all means savings to us and uh, more cash flow and opportunities for our shareholders and potential shareholders.
1: One of the things mining companies come across, especially if they're going into production or even in the development stage, or exploration stage, is finding the right personnel in the area. And you're saying that you're just training locals and putting them to
4: work. I implemented a program before we started construction of uh, 70% local hire. Local being within about 35 kilometers of the mine site. And we're at that now. So we actually got guys that are, are local guys that are at the foreman level, superintendent level, that are running the crushers, that are running the plant, that are working in the pit, and they really appreciate the job. It's a great opportunity for the community. We've got great community support. One other thing that Santa Elena, which is our flagship for Silvercrest, uh, it's the flagship mine, is that it's a very attractive area. So you're close to Hermosillo, which has great infrastructure, an international airport to over a million people. And it's a very attractive place to work because the alternative is to work up in the Sahara Madre. You're on rotation. You don't get to see your families. So we get uh, quite a few people that are interested in coming to Santa Elena and work for us because of that.
1: In addition to the production that you have going on and expanding that production capability, what about further exploration and stepping out the resource itself at Santa Elena? What's happening in that direction?
4: We got a twofold plan for this year. One is to expand the resources at Santa Elena and I'm shooting for a 50% to 100% increase in our underground resources. We've started up a drilling program, so look forward to those news releases coming up over the next several months. Beyond Santa Elena and expanding that resource, with success of expanding that resource it adds mine life adds more job security, adds more cash flow to the company and and to its shareholders. Beyond Santa Elena, we uh, have a major discovery in the state of Durango. Keep in mind that Santa Elena is in the state of Sonora, so there's quite a Bit of a distance between the, the two sites, so that major discovery is called La Jolla. We just did our first Ni forty-three one hundred one resource in January, over a hundred million ounces silver equivalent, about sixty percent of that silver, thirty percent copper, and ten percent on the gold side. So, So there's great opportunities. We continue to drill there. We got an 80-hole program that's underway, and we're shooting for a double on that resource toward the end of this year, too. We'll see if we're successful or not. The opportunity's there. It's a big system. It's a major discovery. Great opportunity for the company to grow in that direction. I would see Silvercrest in two to three years of being a mid-tier silver gold producer and bringing, with success, bringing La Jolla online. it's five years out. You've got to get through all of your studies, but there is a, a conceptual business plan in place right now to look at the growth of the company.
1: What kind of mine life are we looking at?
4: Before the expansion plan, it was six years. The expansion plan at Santa Elena is adding another five years. So you're 10 to 11 years with success and getting 50% to 100% more resources underground. You're probably adding another two to three years on that life. So, I think that Santa Elena, at the end of the day, with metal prices being where they're at, is a major project over the next 10 to 15 years.
1: Well, you're generating revenue through production, silver is being used as a speculative investment and as an industrial metal. We don't see the need for silver abating at all for the foreseeable future, whether it's the bullion itself or producing public company like yours.
4: I agree with you. I mean, silver, 50% of it's used on the commodities side and 50% is industrial. So there is a balance there depending on global uh, economics and what's going on. But uh, we're very bullish on silver.
1: Any plans beyond what we've discussed for the next two years?
4: We're always looking at other projects. Uh, We're in a unique position right now, Ellis, that we do have a strong cash flow, although some of it's being put towards our expansion plan. We look at two to three acquisitions a month right now. I have an acquisitions team in Mexico. We love Mexico. We don't have any problems with the security there. There's great opportunities. I've previously worked in Nevada. Mexico is like Nevada 30 to 40 years ago. I mean, you can walk over, and we've just shown it, La Jolla a year ago had nothing, and one year later, it's a major discovery. So if I can go out in the field and walk over something and make a major discovery within the last year, you know that there's got to be tremendous opportunity, and we want to capture that opportunity. We don't want to overdo it because we do have a limited amount of people and a limited amount of funds. but you definitely don't want to pass up an opportunity, and we continue to look for those.
1: So if you were to pick up another find or two, like Santa Elena or La Jolla over the next two years, you would not be displeased?
4: Oh, no. No, it's it's all great growth for the company. And we're pretty lean and mean. I mean, our corporate office has eight people in it. We don't book out uh, penthouse suites and spend millions of dollars on our overhead uh, just to keep the upper management happy. So... Lean and Mean we got over 240 employees or contractors right now in Mexico and that's a pretty tight team for the amount of work and accomplishment that we're doing right now so to find uh, another one or two or bring into our stable another one or two uh, projects just means great growth for the company uh, moving once again into a mid-tier silver gold producer and and we have the management team and the qualifications to do that
1: Speaking of your management team, the man with a great vision, one of the founders of the company, CEO Scott Drever, has been
4: a quiet and
1: strong presence.
4: Oh, definitely. And, And he will continue to be. I mean, Scott and I, we bat around business ideas every day. He's a great stable force in moving this company forward. There was actually three of us founders, myself, Scott, and Barney Magnuson of Silvercrest, Beyond that, uh, senior management level, there's uh, some great potential just below us. Brent McFarlane, Jed Thomas, uh, Salvador Aguayo. These are all VP positions that are critical to the growth of this company, and they got a lot of great experience and good people.
1: Well, Eric, it's been a pleasure catching up with you. Thanks for joining me on the program, and thanks for the update. I look forward to speaking with you again.
4: Okay, thank you uh, once again for the opportunity, Alice.
1: I've been chatting with Eric Feer, Chief Operating Officer for Silvercrest Mines. Silvercrest trades on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol SVL and on the OTCQX as STVZF. Listen to this segment again
0: on the podcast page of our website, ellismartinreport.com. Hey, it's me, Google Voice Guy. You should be feeling the effects of brain growth by now. Take a moment and relax. You can always catch up online at our website, ellismartinreport.com. That's ellismartinreport.com. If you listen to all the programs there, your mind will be saturated with money juice. That's what I call it. That's ellismartinreport.com join me now for an impromptu, spur-of-the-moment
1: interview with the silver guru, David Morgan. His website is silver-investor.com or themorganreport.com. David, welcome back to the program. Oh, it's good to be with you. I feel as if I have zero say in how our tax dollars are being overspent to pay for who knows what, and it's consistent and more aggressive even during these trying economic times. I received an email today from you asking us to sign a petition.
5: Well, It's not my petition. What happened was, you know, being rather prominent, I guess you could say on the internet, in the precious metal space, obviously silver particularly, I get approached fairly regularly. And this one gentleman got a hold of me that he had started a petition. And this was involving some legislation that he wanted to change. His legislation that his bill, proposed bill, that he wanted to get enough petition signed where he could actually put it on the ballot in North Dakota was that the legislator had to read the bill before they voted on the bill. Now, just saying that just sends a chill down my spine because when we elect officials to represent us, which is the way it's supposed to be, or at least that's what we're told or we're taught, these people you take for granted would read the bills before they vote on them, but that's not the case at all. In most cases, they don't read them at all. And so that was the crux of this, I read what he had done, and I watched the DVD. He sent it to me, priority mail. I dropped what I was doing. It was two days ago. Watched the whole thing. Really got me more fired up watching the DVD than what I had already maintained over the phone conversation. And I decided to help him out and learned a great deal in the process. Now, he spent a great deal of his own time, money, and energy throughout North Dakota, and he needed 15,000 signatures in order to move this petition to have it put on the ballot in North Dakota. He only received 2,000 signatures. So he was like seven times as many to go in order to actually even get this thing placed on the ballot. But he learned a great deal. And in that process, he's contacting people such as myself that are willing to help the cause. But again, I just have to say it one more time. Where have we gone where we have to put a, a measure into the legislature that demands they read the laws that they're voting on. I mean, this is like a science fiction or a comic book situation. Oh, no, we don't read them. We just vote on them. I mean, it's ridiculous. And yet that is exactly the case.
1: Now, I read something recently that illustrated the concept that these bills are purposely written in great misguided depth, voluminously thick, in order that they're impossible to read. They're not supposed to be read. They're just supposed to get passed. They're never going to be read. Most members of Congress don't read them. Bills are just getting passed by rote. Where's our voice, David?
5: Well, that's the point, one of the many points. Exactly right. This documentary does a great job of explaining most of these bills are written by lobbyists that have very much vested interest, special interests, as they're commonly referred to. They write the legislation and they pass it along to their hand-picked Congress critter of choice, and they put the bill into the House of Representatives, and then it's voted on. What they also showed in this documentary, which I actually didn't know, although it didn't shock me when I saw it, was when these votes are taking place, they vote electronically by pressing a button on their desk, and that legislators will push the buttons of other House members that either are absent or not at their desk at the precise time. For an example, I forget whom it was, but it's again in the DVD. One of the Congress critters was pressed his button, turned around, and the guy behind him didn't have a chance to press the button before he voted for him. I mean, this is absolutely, again, absurd. It's it's beyond ridiculous. And yet, these are people that are spending money we don't have for causes we don't want, and doing it without even knowledge of what laws they are passing. I mean, again, words don't, you know, leave me. I I don't have anything, I can't express it strongly enough of how upsetting this really is when you think about what has gone on and what has happened to a, a nation that was set on a fundamental principle that was basically very simple. And the fact that we're all created equal didn't mean that we're all created equal in the sense that we could all play NFL football. We're all created equal in the fact that we're all could be an Einstein. But we're all created equal in the eyes of the law. That's what separates a republic from a democracy. We all have the same legal rights guaranteed by the legislator. Guaranteed primarily by our creator and secured by the founding documents. It's gotten so convoluted it's become laughable although it's not in the least bit funny.
1: Where's the fairness here?
5: There isn't any. The fairness is gone. The Thanks to of the law is gone. The special interests are running the show. There's so much legislation out there and so much more that gets passed every year that no one can really make sense of it. Unfortunately, it's gonna take something nearly catastrophic to bring it back into some semblance of sanity, point being that the economic situation is untenable. And that alone is something that resonates with everybody. Everybody buys food, everybody drinks water, everybody seeks shelter. And when those things start moving away from you or your ability to pay for them, everyone gets a wake-up call. And that's the direction that we're headed, and I think we're going to continue. And then these questions will be asked. I'm not sure the right questions will be asked. I'm not sure the right people will be blamed. But at least there will be some waking-up period that will take place. And when things fall apart, they don't come back together very easily.
1: Well, you know what the answer is, don't you? Spread the wealth. <laughs>
5: yeah, right. Well, no, I print it all up and drop it from the helicopters equally to everyone. And then we'll all be rich and it won't matter.
1: If it's indeed all about money, where's the money going to come from to pay for all of this?
5: That's, as you know, Ellis, what deficit spending is all about. The deficit means that all the tax revenues that are collected do not cover the expenditures of the government. And to make up the difference, they have to borrow it. And that's been going on for, again, a very long time. And it will continue. I mean, right now they could tax everybody at 100%, and I don't think it would make a difference. We're mathematically at a point where it's impossible to get this thing under control. And so therefore, logic tells us it's out of control. It's not going to end well.
1: How does a petition help? Where are the freedom fighters?
5: Well, I think, one, you have to stay somewhat optimistic and realistic. To just get them to have to read the bill under penalty perjury would slow down the legislative process a great deal. And I think that's a good thing. I mean, basically something that's classic and elegant is usually simple. You don't need a bunch of don't need these tons and tons of paper pages upon pages as you suggested were extremely convoluted and
1: Does the natural ebb and flow of all this break down to action at the state level?
5: I think it is, and I think that's what we're seeing. If you look uh, again at my specialty in the precious metals, The states were superior to the federal government, but they did have purview combining the states into a federation for purposes that were important, such as a military force or actually gathering the militia on a nation-state basis if it were required to do so. But they had very limited power. In fact, they had such limited power that the federal government was given a district, not a state. A state is superior to a district, and yet the District of Criminals, I mean, Columbia, was put together, and now, of course, the federal government, through various methodologies, have pretty much usurped the state's power, although the states are fighting back, but at law, states are superior to the
1: district. So actually, if we can get back to a natural decentralization, we're going to be what our founding fathers meant us to be.
5: Pretty much. The idea was that states could pretty much decide how they wanted to do business. If a state, as an example, felt that prostitution should be legal, such as most of Nevada. People that were in favor of that could move to that state. And people that really didn't want anything to do with that type of thing would not be in Nevada. If you had a state that was favorable to gambling, for an example, and again, Nevada would come to mind, let's say a certain methodology doing something, it would attract certain people and not others. But it was the idea that the individual had the right to go where they wanted to. So the states had the power to provide for the citizenry of their state what they deemed appropriate. And, of course, it was really, in the true sense, voted on by the people. In other words, it was the people's will. And yet, of course, we've come a long, long ways from that over the last you know, many decades.
1: So we, the people, don't really get a chance to vote on our own personal destiny when we go to the ballot box. We're just selecting individuals, for the most part, that are being lobbied.
5: Now, that's what's pointed out again in this documentary, that a lot of freshmen congressmen come in with a great deal of enthusiasm and very idealistic only to learn the truth that there's 300 lobbyists following every one of them around, constantly bending their ear, and they learn if you're going to get anything done, you're going to have to listen to the lobbyists.
1: How can we find this documentary?
5: Well, I put it out for our you know, broad list, the basic free list that I, I maintain for everybody's benefit. There is a URL on there that can click and and buy the uh, DVD. Just send an email to support at silver-investor.com. Again, that's support at silver-investor.com. And say you want the Fools on the Hill. That's Fools, F-O-O-L-S, on the Hill. It's all about how foolish the uh, Congress critters are. And we'll send you the information on the DVD.
1: Tell us
0: about the Morgan Report.
5: Well, i just mentioned we do have a free email for everybody's benefit. Above that and beyond that, there's a member section, which is a paid service, which helps you make money in money mining the metals. There's a basic service for $130 a year, and there's a two services above that. One is I uh, show you the trades that I'm putting on and off and go into the, a lot of the videos. We produce videos of... Different companies, interviews, that type of thing that we put in the members-only section. And then there's an advanced service for basically fund managers or high-net-worth individuals. All of those are explained in greater depth on the website via video presentation. David,
1: as always, it's been a bit of a history lesson and an economic lesson. Thanks for joining us today on the Ellis Martin Report. My pleasure. Thank you. David Morgan's website is arrived at by typing in silver-investor.com.
0: We offer expert opinions only. Find them on our website ellismartinreport.com that's ellismartinreport.com would you like to hear all of that again go to the podcast page of our website that's ellismartinreport.com ellismartinreport.com otherwise known as ellismartinreport.com Cream Minerals trades on the Venture
1: Exchange under the symbol CMA.V and in the U.S. on the -the Over-the-Counter Bulletin Board as CRMXF. Michael O'Connor, president of Cream Minerals, thanks for joining me today on the Ellis Martin Report.
6: My pleasure, Ellis. Thank you.
1: What's come up with regard to your Nuevo Millennial
6: project? We issued a news release, and in that news release, there were four drill holes from Onsibocus North, which is a potential open pit target on the uh, floor of the caldera. Of the four holes, the hole 9 missed the zone, which happens in exploration drilling. However, holes 10, 11, and 12 did hit the zone. All of the holes returned good values, and the best value was 68 grams per ton silver and 0.4 grams per ton gold over an intercept of 22 meters. Contained within that intercept and also contained with the intercept on the other two drill holes, 11 and 12, were higher grade intercept of roughly 2 metres running 150 grams per tonne silver and roughly 0.7 grams to 0.8 grams per tonne gold. Quite good results. I'm very happy with them. When you take those within the context of a uh, open-pit potential, it becomes really very interesting. Well, you've
1: got high grades of silver at surface. You're most definitely increasing the resource. Will this specifically define the company as an open-pit resource project?
6: I think it's a little bit too early to, to say that it's going to be strictly an open-pit project. You know, we do have very good grades in the quartz veins and the quartz stock works contained in the eastern wall of the caldera. The prime determinant will be total ounces contained in the east wall of the caldera. Are there sufficient ounces there? And are the locations of the quartz veins with respect to each other amenable to underground mining? If that works out, then yes, we could have an underground uh, mining operation. Most certainly at this stage, it looks like we will have open pit operations on the floor of the caldera.
1: Your market cap expands naturally due to the growing price of silver. We've had several people come on the program and predict that it's going to hit 50 or 60 dollars announced by the end of the year.
6: That's correct. I mean, currently our market cap is roughly 35, 37 million dollars. This stock is trading approximately 27, 28 cents Canadian. There are 153 million shares out, so let's assume that silver rallies strongly, the share price rallies strongly, hits a dollar then our market cap is $153 million.
1: So that should directly affect the share price of your company as well.
6: Any junior exploration company which has got a, an in-situ resource and which is working on developing or expanding that in-situ resource <laughs> can be viewed as, as a long-term call on the price of silver. So as the price of silver goes up, the price of the silver in the ground, or the value of the silver in the ground, is going to go up. So therefore, the net present value on a fully diluted basis is going to go up. Therefore, the share price sooner or later is going to have to respond to the increase in the net present value of the underlying the share price.
1: Well, the open pit means that it's actually going to be a lot cheaper to produce an ounce of silver and uh, uh, additionally create that
6: sort of value for your shareholders. That's correct. It's going to be much cheaper to produce an ounce of silver. It's also going to be much easier to produce an ounce of gold. Typically in the open pit areas, we're seeing about 0.4 to 0.7 grams per tonne gold, which is a nice credit to have because generally it will pay for all your mining and milling costs. In addition, if you're looking at an open pit operation, your capital investment is going to be dramatically lower than if you're looking at at an underground mining operation, simply because you're spared the expense of drilling the tunnels, the drifts, the addits, etc. That can be incredibly expensive. And, of course, there's plenty
1: of infrastructure in Nayarit State, Mexico.
6: We're within, say, 14 kilometers from the airport, 14 kilometers from power. We're roughly 14 kilometers from water. There's a railway that is, I'd say, 8 kilometers from the entrance to the property, and we're 27 kilometers I road from Topeka, the capital of Nayarit State. So with respect to proximity and infrastructure, it is very favorable for the uh, development of the project because the capital investment required, or the infrastructure capital investment required, is actually going to be quite low compared to some other projects I've seen.
1: Who are some of the analysts that have covered you lately?
6: Starting with Northern Securities, Matthew Zalestra. He has a speculative buy rating on the stock with a one-year target of 47 cents. Uh, he issued his initial coverage in late December of 2011. Mike Bandrowski, mining analyst with Clara Securities, is currently issuing morning notes. Brian Zietzo with Byron Securities has a speculative buy. He currently doesn't have a, uh, a one-year price target, however, he has said that in subsequent research publications, he will have a, uh, a one-year price target. And most recently, Dundee Securities included CREAM in their summary of junior silver exploration companies uh, for 2012. Michael
1: O'Connor, president of CREAM Minerals, trading on the venture exchange under the symbol CMA.V and the over-the-counter bulletin board as CRMXF. It's been a pleasure speaking with you today.
6: Thank you, Alice. It's my pleasure.
0: Hey. The Ellis Martin Report is sponsored in part by Tanzanian Royalty Exploration Corporation, trading on the New York Stock Exchange under the symbol TRX. Tanzanian Royalty's Buck Reef Project is an advanced-stage gold project currently in feasibility in Tanzania, with a commercial production target approximately 30 months away. With $30 million in their treasury, the company is prepared to further explore and develop the property. The president of the Tanzanian Royalty is renowned commodities expert Jim Sinclair. Visit our website, tanzanianroyalty.com. That's tanzanianroyalty.com. You've just shared part of your life with the Ellis Martin Report. (laughs) Yeah, you did. Remember, this is actually one of those paid programs where companies and individuals hand over cash to people like us to let you hear all about themselves, thinking you might actually be interested. Remember, kids, invest at your own risk. Find us on the web at ellismartinreport.com. The Ellis Martin Report is a unit of Big Sky Productions. For Ellis Martin. This is your announcer, Cool Voice Guy. Yeah. Thanks again for
3: listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel.